Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. My guest today, she was on my show over seven years ago, and she came in studio on crutches. Now, I have done over 900 of these shows and probably over 500 in studio, and I've never seen anybody come in on crutches, and that's the dedication she has, and that's why she's such a great actor. You know her from Broadway, <laughs> Blacklist, Raising Dion, The Wire. Uh, she had a one-person show, which I want to talk about, which happened in the last few years, and my guest is Dee Dee Lovejoy. How you doing, Dee Dee? I'm great, Steve. Thanks for having me back. It's great to see you. Now, you moved to New York. And I, I got to tell you, you look like you're having fun. I saw your Facebook pictures. You and Cameron Mannheim were like at the U.S. Open, <laughs> just having a blast. Do you know, Cameron and I go so far back, I'm not allowed to say. But uh, the hint I will give you is that Cameron and I were uh, grad school classmates. And so for the better part of many, many decades, we've been tearing up the city. And she's just back to Manhattan and starring in the new Law & Order reboot or or whatever they're calling. It's not, you're not allowed to say reboot, but the, the new original Law & Order. So we've been tearing it up all over town. And we were at the US Open. We were at a Knicks game. We go to see theater all the time. And she is just one of my dearest, dearest pals. I treasure her. And I'm so glad she's back. What's it like when you when you two go to theaters? You're both accomplished actors. You both had have had been on hit TV shows, and I would think when you walk into theater, you probably get the people going, "Wait a second, is that wait?" You know, and they, they probably do a double take. But what happens when you guys go out to theater? And actors are probably like, "Holy crap! Look who's in the front row!" Oh, I'm, I'm intimidated. I'm going to tell you exactly what happens, and it has nothing to do with either myself or Cameron generally, it has to do with the fact that Cameron's son, Milo, is a huge teen heartthrob. And people recognize Cameron and will bum rush her to to get a Milo autograph. <laughs> so half the time, it's access to the teen heartthrob thereafter. The rest of the time, they'll recognize her from Law and & Order, and, and occasionally someone will be a Wire fan. But it's 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 that's the great thing about New York, isn't it? You can go anywhere, and anyone, you know, Tom Hanks used to ride the subway to rehearsal. Nobody nobody gives a crap. <laughs> well, I want to I want to get to the Wire later, but I want I did I was thinking about this because. The pandemic happened, and people started binging. Now, when you were on my show seven years ago, people knew The Wire. Okay, everyone knew The Wire, but not like they do now because HBO Max, you know, Netflix, every everyone's cutting cable, and they're watching binging. Have you seen an uptake of people recognizing you because so many more people during the pandemic, we had nothing to do. So we'd watch this, we'd watch that. You know, you go back and watch a show you saw, like, oh, wait, oh, they have old Barney Millers. We're going to go watch that. What have you noticed an uptake of people saying, oh, my God, Rhonda, what, oh, my God. Let me tell you a true story. It happened two weeks ago. I was uh, at the uh, Hudson Guild Theater on Broadway seeing Wendell Pierce play Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. And we, I had just greeted Wendell after the show. I was in tears. He was brilliant. If you haven't seen the show, you must go see it. Anyway, we come out of the theater, and he's virtually surrounded by people praising his performance as Willie Loman. And there, we step out onto the curb, and there's this stream of teenage boys passing by, and without missing a beat, they all go, "Yo, bunk!" And each one dap him as he as they walk by, and there must have been a dozen of them. 
that happens all the time. Um, I'll get, I'll occasionally get a Yo Ronnie here or there. Um, but, but it's been very consistent because streaming sort of has picked up as the, as the years have gone by. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm just thrilled that that show is being seen and enjoyed as much now as it was 20 years ago. If you can believe that it was 20 years ago. How, How does that make you feel as an actor? You know, you, you're part of something that it's like I interview a lot of musicians, and I, especially 80s musicians, because we're around the same age, and we, 80s music was very important. And those songs mm-hmm. still resonate with me. I interviewed the, the OMD and Howard Jones, and I talked about this stuff. For you as an actor, you're part of a show that resonates with people who watched it in the beginning, but like you said, there's a brand new audience. How does it make you feel as an actor? Because you were part of what arguably some people say the best show of all time. You know, some people will say this, but, you know, it's an argument. How does it make you feel just for being someone who's, you know, you busted your ass, you've worked, you've had a lot of accolades. How does it make you feel just sitting there going, oh, my God, you know, I am part of TV history? Lucky. It makes me feel really lucky because, you know, as an actor, all you do is show up and, and, and try to do the best at your job and you have to turn the results over to the universe. You never know what's going to come back at you. So to have the kind of, not just, you know, oh, that's a great show, but, you know, they teach classes on the wire at Harvard and at Yale. They they use it as a sociological launch pad for a greater discussion, which was, you know, I think always what the show was intended for and is what it's become over the years. But, you know, I'd be lying if I said the beginning, I knew that was what it was about in the years since um, it, it almost feels like a bit of a responsibility, you know. I mean, that was a great piece of work that I was lucky enough to be a part of. And I am grateful for that experience every day. And I'm really grateful that it's being passed on to a new generation of people that are, are enjoying it. Now, what was your process in getting that role? I mean, was it something that you had a long audition process? I know, you know, when it started off, it's just like, you know, when they shot Homicide in Baltimore, the budget was very low. I mean, not like now budgets, but was it was it hard for you to get that gig? And and as you said, you didn't know what would happen. But did you feel, you know, did you when you read that script or if you had when you auditioned, did you did you feel like there was something a little bit magical in the writing? You know what? I knew it was a really good that the material was really good. I also. um you know, it speaks to sort of my confidence level as an actor back then. I didn't think there was a chance in H-E double toothpicks that I would ever get that job. And the waiting room was filled with every actress that you can imagine that was far more, you know, fancy and, and, and just as qualified as, as me. Sometimes you walk in and I think you're what they're looking for and there's nothing you can do to get rid of the job. I think that's what happened to me on The Wire. And I'm not saying that from an egocentric sort of point, like, oh, I walked in and I sometimes you, 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 you know, for the hundreds of times that we show up um, and suit up and memorize auditions and put on a brave face and do our best in rooms. Sometimes you walk in and there's nothing you can do to get rid of that job. And that's what happened to me with the wire. I think, I think I walked in and they were like, Oh, there she is. And, and they, that's not to say that they hadn't seen so many brilliant actresses. It was just a kismet with me in that role for some reason. Now, when did you feel a click? Like, when did you say, wow, 
You know, it's like anything. It's like, you know, I'm a big Philadelphia Phillies fan. And right now we're going to the World Series. <laughs> and it just it just clicked. Like you're sitting there at the last the last week of the season. My wife would hear me and go yelling in the other room. She's like, relax, you know, relax. And But then all of a sudden they go in the playoffs and it just clicks and they get to the World Series. With The Wire, was there a certain point where it just clicked and you went, wow. Just holy mm-hmm. shit, look at this. Yeah, for me, that happened at season three um, because the body of work was starting to emerge and you could sort of um, begin to sense the the larger dramatic overtones of the piece. Um, and season three was season threes and four are my favorite seasons of The Wire. And sometime I um, in the midst of the, those storylines, I remember being struck by the... Um, sort of gravity of what I was involved in, in a good way. So when the pandemic came along, because I've talked to a lot of actors who said, and people don't understand this. Everyone thinks actors, they just get up and they get apart. They understand that it's audition and it's rejection and it's audition and rejection. You get an offer and there's audition and rejection and you get used to it. And I always talk to business people. I'm like, you guys don't even know what it's like for rejection. There's people who have been on hit shows who still have to audition or still have to do this. And it's just, and to me, it's irritating, but the, the general public doesn't get that. When the pandemic happened, did you, because you have to get used to it. Your skin's got to get tough. You, you have to get used to um, the rejection and, you know, and the successes. What happened when the pandemic happened? Like, were you like, I mean, what was your mindset? Were you like, oh my God, you know, like we might not ever go back to a production. I mean, what went through a lot of actors' heads when that happened? Well, I think what went through actors' heads is not unlike what went through everyone's heads at the beginning of the pandemic, which is, oh my God, I am not essential. (laughs) And, you know, what we all did to sort of... uh, navigate those waters of non-essentialness during the pandemic uh, in the beginning was very crucial. And for me, I think it was um, knowing that it wasn't going to last forever and just trying to take it a day at a time, which is what I kind of do in my life as well. Because if I try to get through to the next job, I don't know when that's going to be. I have to go, I have to keep my feet and my head in the day and say, okay, what can I do today? Um, what can I, how, how can I prepare for this audition? How can I do my best? And then send it off and forget about it. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I just lost track of the question now, but anyway, that's my answer. No, well, it was about the pandemic. What, 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 what were you going through? Because oh, yeah. you don't, you don't have also, the pan- you, know, you, you don't, you know, the pandemic, the pandemic especially cemented my, um, my fascination with New York city because I was not trapped here, but landed here in the middle of Manhattan for all that time. And it was very, very scary. I don't think any of us knew when uh, production was going to come back. I think the beginnings, the beginning parts of um, our unions figuring out how COVID was going to actually be, how the COVID protocols were actually going to be implemented and all that stuff seemed like it would never happen in the middle of the pandemic. Now we're firmly in the middle of that and actually starting to phase those things out. But at the time, you know, I, I think I, I felt like everyone else, which is um, when when is this going to end and how do I make it through? And I, I, I just went a day at a time. Well, not unlike a lot of us, I'm sure. I think also when I've talked to people, 
you know, there's there's a camaraderie that goes, you know, with the cameraman or the director or the actors, you know, before, you know, because you're open. But now it was more divisive because by protocols. And I know you have to go back to your trailer to eat so you don't get to sit there and, you know, go to crafty and beat bullshit with people. How do you get used to that? Because you're someone who's been working. You've been working, you know, you've had a steady, steady career. You've been on hit shows. You've been on, you know, you've been on guest stars. So you're used to the the way it used to be. Like, you know, you go up to Crafty and you grab a bunch of Hidden Valley Crunch Bars and put them in your thing and take them home with you. <laughs> how, how did you get used to that? Because it, it's probably, I hear the protocols are still there for stuff like that. I was, I was all about the kind bars, not the Nature Valley. <laughs> But I get your point. Um, you know, it's isolating. It's very isolating to have to remain sequestered in your zone. Uh, go get your test. Go hide in your room till you get the okay, and then you get to go to makeup with your shield and your face mask on, and and you know take it off. Or it, it's it, and back to the room exactly as you've described it, and then back to work, and then back to the room. It's the the um, the landscape of uh, random encounters has virtually been eliminated, and that is sad because, you know, there is the, the actor area where the chairs are, the cast chairs are, where people do get to hang out a little bit. But generally, that's discouraged right now because of COVID protocols. So it's it's a huge adjustment. It's not fun, um, and it's robbed the workplace of sort of that essential element of what makes things really sort of magical which is the intangible that happens when when people get together but hopefully you know i know working on the blacklist we we try very very hard to to make sure that all of our work is still up to snuff even though it's very isolated and and we're all in our separate corners until we come to work now, when you were on my show last time, you were on crutches, and I forget, what was I that was. operation for? And I was wondering, how did you decide, was it a doctor said you have to get it done now? Because as an actor, being on crutches, you know, you're like, wait, wait, I don't, you know, what if I get a role? What was, did you, was it a torn meniscus or something? I forget what it was. I had had a huge reconstructive surgery, Steve. Thank you for asking. I had had all of my ligaments replaced with cadaver ligaments. My knee, I'm, I'm like rebuilt from the ground up. So, um, and shortly thereafter, about two months after we did the podcast, um, the blacklist called with an offer to do two episodes. And I am still doing that show um, seven seasons later. And it's just been a few episodes every year, a few more episodes every year, and going strong. So um, I had this incredibly intense surgery, and little by little, things started to come back. But um, but the gift that keeps on giving has been the blacklist, and um, and that's you know something I'm extremely grateful for that started right after I met you. Well, the blacklist is such a popular show. Tell me about your arc. Because I know you know you're, you're, you've you've gone from you know a, a lawyer, I believe you, you're you're a, you're a politician now, or, or what was it? Tell me that so they call you, and you're were you completely recovered? Were, were you was were your legs were you ready to get on set? I had a cane. I had a cane. When as soon as we called cut, I would be on the cane, and I walked well enough to fake it through the scenes. So uh, that's how I started on the blacklist. But I but I. I was very much on the road to being able to walk on two feet. <laughs> but that, that job did hurry me back a little bit. Um, 
my arc as a character over the years has been really fascinating because I started out, Cynthia Panabaker started out as White House counsel. And I was White House counsel through virtually three different presidents. And then I became a senator. And now I'm a senator. Uh, I currently am a senator as of the end of season nine. I'm, a, I'm Senator Cynthia Panabaker, who is still uh, tangentially linked to the task force in terms of getting them permission to exist and um, to do all of their special secret operations, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how did that build? You said they called you for two episodes, and then you come back. So yeah. as an actor, you you have to go and try to find work. And so if someone says, we're going to give you two episodes, do you have to, like, say, do you have to block a part of your calendar off just in case you get two more episodes? Or how did it, how did, how did it start building, and did you ever run into any conflict? I, they have been great over the years. Um, so far, knock wood, we have had no, um, you know, there haven't been any major, major scheduling things because they've been great about, um, you know, bringing me in when I'm working on another job, et cetera, et cetera. But the way it's unfolded has been probably not as uh, magically as one would wish. I mean, every year I never know if they're going to call. And every year they started calling. And um, just as the years sort of progressed, I sort of then grew to expect a call um, with just, you know, the offer of a few episodes. And so it's gone on that way. I've never had a promise of coming back. I get every script and I wonder if I'm still alive. <laughs> you know, you, you never know. I never know. Every episode could be my could be my last. It could be um, or it might not be. But I certainly never know. And that's the truth of it. Well, I got to ask you, I, I saw you on Law & Order SVU this last season. You were great. It was where you played the doctor and there was a crazy guy in the home. And 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 it's funny because me, me and my wife, we usually record Law & Order and then we watch all three in a row and we fast forward to commercials just because you, you, get, you get... And now it's so funny. We've become so lazy that there's actually... You don't... You just have to push the button. It runs and then it stops when the commercial's over. And I'm like... And I sit there and go, that's not even fun. It used to be, I used to love it when I would stop it right on time. I'd be like, honey, you see that? I nailed it. Because FX always has a, a the ad. I go, see that? But what was it like going on Law & Order? And I know you've been on there before. And when you go on a show that's been around, I mean, it's fascinating to think how long that show has been around. And you're going on with a crew that have probably been there that long. And they all know that they're going to get pension. They know they're going to have a job. So there's no anger. But what is it like when you go on a, a, a set like that where you just know it's going to run smooth? Is that is, is that really relaxing as an actor? Or do you think, well, I better not screw up because it's running really smooth? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say yes to both. Um, it's dreamy going on a well-run ship. You know, a well-oiled machine is, is a is a beautiful thing to be a part of. And, you know, that cast is so great. Kelly Giddish and I went to the same uh, university, University of Evansville in Evansville, Indiana. Big plug for their theater program there. And um, Mariska Hagerty is the nicest woman you've ever met. And so there's a lot of perks that come with that job security as people are relaxed and nice and ice is cool. And, you know, everyone knows they're going to have a job tomorrow and they certainly have had a job for many, many years. So 
there's um those are there's an ease with that kind of set that you don't have uh in, in other places where they're you know trying to make their day and they haven't been doing it for 25 years and they know that their day is going to be made by this time what made you get into acting where 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 did it come from you know and and it's funny because as i said and i want to ask you well before you answer that with all the you know you go through rejection and ups and downs. As you said, sometimes you don't know when you're going to work again. What makes you stick with acting? And But then when you think about when you were young, deciding to get into acting, did you think it would be all this? Oh, my gosh. That's a loaded question. Did I think it would be all this? Yes, I did. I thought it would be exactly all this. Exactly what I was afraid of <laughs> happened. <laughs> true you know everybody said if you if you you can do anything else do it if you can if you can do anything do it because you will have no career stability you will have nothing but rejection you will have constant you know agita about where your next meal is coming from where do i sign up for that i said um i actually wanted to be a veterinarian and my mother said to me when I came home with a, a D on my algebra test, she said, you're never going to be a veterinarian because you're terrible at math. You better be an actress. I have the only mother in the world that wanted me to be an actress more than she wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or anything like that. Thank God I just wanted to play lawyers on television. Um, my mom was a, a, the ultimate stage mom and wanted to be an actor herself. And when she chose children over a career she uh pushed me into one and that's how i became an actor started to do community theater with her when i was in fourth grade and i've never done anything else fourth grade that's amazing you know it's so funny because so many people change through the years like you know i mean people change it once they're over 50 you know so so when you you said you went to evansville so then when you graduate you're in indiana okay now there's not a lot of acting in Indiana. So is it, is it one of those things that you sit there and go, I have to go to New York. And was that a daunting thought to you? Cause you're like, Oh my God, it's New York. I don't know anybody or, you know, I mean, what happened? You know what? Um, my thought was I'm going to move to New York for out of Indiana. I was like, I don't need to go to grad school. I don't need to do anything. I'm going to, I'm, I'm moving to New York. And I wasn't scared of it. I was excited about, um, the possibility of moving and I had a mentor at the University of Evansville named John David Lutz who strongly encouraged me uh, by way of writing checks for all of my applications to apply for graduate schools and I, so I, I did and I got into NYU and when I got into NYU I thought you know that was a great opportunity to get to New York and study at the same time but they, it took some convincing I was not convinced that I had, didn't have all the training I needed. And boy, am I glad I didn't listen to myself. <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm really glad I didn't listen to my 18-year-old self that I took some advice. But what is it like? I mean, what is the process to get into grad school for acting? Is there an audition? Or you said mm-hmm. there's the application, but I mean, what is the audition like? Do they just, like... Does it get you prepared for when you audition, as you said, for The Wire, when you have a whole room full of people? I mean, what was your audition process to get into NYU? Because it's a very prestigious program. 
NYU does um, not uh, not unlike Yale and uh, the League of Graduate Schools. They they have auditions at the school um, during. They also have recruit recruiting tours where they will tour around, and you can come to Chicago and audition with uh, two pieces. You do a contemporary and a classical and sixteen bars of a song. And you do that, and then generally, if you are, if if they like you, you are called back for another work session, and then if it's on the road, you're invited to New York to come to the grad school to do a couple of work sessions, and from those work sessions, that's how they select the classes and the students. Excuse me. So when you get out, where do you where do you start? I know, like, how did you end up on Broadway? Because you've been on Broadway a few times, which you know, to me, it's just amazing that anyone like Broadway is like going to the big lakes. You know, it's like. You know, but tell me your tell me your trip to Broadway. You know How'd you what? It's it it's it's so circuitous. My my Broadway shows are are all are a very strange, varied bunch too. I've done four, and the first one was uh, Six Degrees of Separation, which was a John Guare play, and it's a title that everybody knows because of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a very uh, well well-worn theory, I think. But anyway, um, that was in Lincoln Center, and I auditioned and uh, was cast as an understudy. And I got a call a couple months into the run that the actress I was on, one of the actresses I was covering was going to be out, and so I was going to be on that day. And so I made my Broadway debut as an understudy. Now, it just turned out that um, I wound up replacing that woman in the show when she left. So I finished out the whole run of the show. And that was my first, you know, big fancy Broadway show at Lincoln Center. And then my my, my last big fancy was um, a Tom Tom Hanks show that was written by Nora Ephron and directed by George C. Wolfe called Lucky Guy. And I actually booked that show off of a self-tape, if you can believe it. I can't believe it. Um, but I was doing a play in Indiana at the IRT, I got a call to send in a tape for this play, and I thought there is no chance in hell. And so, but my friend Holland Taylor said, "Send in that tape." So I sent it in, and then I got the job. <laughs> so um, that was how I got Lucky Guy uh, from a from a tape that I made in a hotel room in Indianapolis. So you make a tape. Believe that. You make a tape, and then you're in a play with Tom Hanks. That's right. And. From written by Nora Ephron, which you're, you're looking right there, it's gold. You know it's going to do well. People are going to be there. Is that intimidating at all? Because I know you're a tr- professional, but once again, it's Tom Hanks and Nora Ephron. It's not like, you know, I don't know, someone, you know. I mean, what was that like for you? I mean, first of all, it must have been amazing that you did it on the self-tape. But, I mean, what was your feeling going to New York? Were you like, oh, this is... I was over the moon, and I frankly kept, you know, the first week or so, I kept thinking maybe they made a mistake. <laughs> so I was going to show up and be like, oh, I didn't mean her. The other tape. Um, but that didn't happen. And so it was intimidating the first day, you know. Uh, but, but if there's one thing that he is a master of, and he's master of many, but if there's one thing he's an special master of, it's... Um, Tom Hanks is a master of putting everyone at ease and making everyone in the room feel like they're the most important person there. So he does that, and 
and we're off to the races. And Nora, unfortunately, had passed away weeks before we started rehearsal. So it was a somber sort of a, um, initial meeting as well, because one of the reasons Tom wanted to play was to be in the room with Nora again. So it was a it was a very rich experience that whole that whole play. What is it like going back? Because you go back and forth on stage from when you get used to being on TV shows, which, as you know, it's take a take, cut, take a take. Being on stage, screw up. People are like, there's nowhere to go. Is it is it hard for you to transition back in? and back and forth or because you're classy, you're trained and you, you took the time, you didn't listen to, you know, Evansville, Evansville, Dede, you listened to, you know, you went to New York, NYU. Is it easy for you to go back and forth now? Is it something where, cause you know, I know you're an actor, Richard Kine yelled at me cause I said, do you like doing comedy or drama? And he's like, ah, you know, Steve, it's, it's all acting, you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. What is it like for you to go back and forth? Well, I don't go back and forth as often as I would like. So, to full disclosure, I, I haven't done as much back and forthing as one might think um, in terms of theater and, and television. I, I am um, a very new and proud member of a place called the Actors Center. And the Actors Center is a group in New York City that, um, uh, if you are a member of, offers very specific and wonderful classes. I'm about to take a workshop with Joanna Merlin uh, on Michael Chekhov. Uh, there are things like that that I do to try to keep my, my muscles going. And I don't find it difficult to, to transition between the two. I find, I find I just jump with both feet and I enjoy them both so much that I don't have trepidation about either. If that makes sense. It's great that you go. You're going back. No, the act. The, what is it called? The the, the actor center. That's not Bobby Moresco, is it? No. Okay, he has a center some uh, in New York. Um, it's great that you do that. You know, because a lot of times people think that they're above it. You know, like you talk to musicians who've been playing drums forever, and they go, "We still practice." You know, a few hours a day because you have to keep the muscle. And I think sometimes people get complacent. But trained people who really are serious about their craft, they they have to keep the muscle. So, is it something that when you go, do you are you very open minded? I mean, what are you expecting from when you go to this workshop? I don't know what to expect, but I do expect to be surprised and to learn something about my myself and the way I work, um, and for my work to be informed through the lens of whatever it is that they're teaching. Um, I do find I'm I'm very spongy in that way. Um, I think most actors are. Now tell me about Bird. Uh, you, you wrote, and it's a one-person show, which is a daunting task because it's just you. But how did that come about? Because I know you went through stuff, and it's tell me about that because I I read uh, about it. and I was very interested. Well, um, it, the story came about um, through a series of events in my life that involved my going through a series of debilitating um, grand mal seizures. And by the end of 2009, I couldn't walk or talk. And I was confined to my bed in a seizure-like state. And I had visitations from otherworldly spirits and lots of interesting uh, 
experiences in that other realm that I was inhabiting while I was sort of in this uh, electrical dream state. Um, and it's about uh, my climb back from being virtually a, kind of a vegetable to a fully functioning human being again. And I, so I, I did this uh, reading of this play, Bird, Elephant, China. Uh, at, I've done a few readings of it. It's been very, very successful. And who knows what will happen with it in the future. I, I'm always open to new possibilities. Now, tell me about some of the times you've died on screen. I know, like, I read somewhere where, like, the bones, like, you're, like, the biggest bones gif. Like, like you, I just, I want to hear, like, I always, it always is funny, because some, you find some actors who, like, they always die. You know, it, it's one of those things. But tell me about some of your, your death experiences, and how hard is it to act, like, to act dead, or, like, I mean, like, bones. Tell me about bones. Bones was easy because here's how I died on bones. Are you ready? Um, content warning. My head was exploded off of my body by a sniper. Now, I didn't have to do that personally. I didn't have to make my head explode off of my body. Um, I didn't even have to drop to my knees as if my head had been exploded off my body. That was a stunt woman. So really, she did that whole death, but I got all the credit. And um, it is a pretty spectacular <laughs> Uh, little gift. I didn't know it was a gift, by the way. Now I'm going to look it up, see if it's a gift. Um, I also died from um, drinking a peanut-laced, a scotch from a peanut-laced glass once because I had a severe, I went into, so that was a fun one. That was on a show called Numbers way back in the day. One of my favorite things that I've ever gotten to do is, I, I didn't die in this one, but I, I, I performed an autopsy on my own son, and then I murdered his surgeon. <laughs> that was a fun one. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then I kidnapped Elizabeth Smart for nine months, so. Tell me about you know, that. Got, tell me about that, because that's, uh, that's oh, something man. that you're, you're, playing, that you're playing someone real. Like, yeah. tell me about that, because I, that's, that's fascinating. You know what? Um, Elizabeth Smart produced that movie herself. So it was a lifetime movie. And sometimes, you know, I, I think I had a little uh, preconceived notion about what that might be like. But once I showed up on the set and Elizabeth Smart was staring me in the face, it got really real really quickly. And it was a wonderful experience. I mean, uh, it's hard to call it wonderful. It was a it was a it was a really worthwhile and rewarding experience although it was tough to be on the set with her and she'd be like no he 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 didn't sit there he sat over here and no the bucket be turned over like this not like that and then she'd look at me and i was playing the crazy woman that was really violent to her and she would look at me and go you're fine and she'd just walk away <laughs> and i would be like okay i guess i'm crazy you know but, you know, things like that are once-in-a-lifetime experiences that um, that are uh, worthwhile because you, you can really see immediately how you're being of service in the world. You know, you, you're being of service by telling that story so that other people can be more aware so that hopefully, you know, one less kid is abducted or whatever. But um, not every job has that sort of immediate gratification. That one did. That one did. 
What are some other ones that you've given immediate gratification? I mean, because you, you, you have a great, I always love looking at IMDb, and you have a great <laughs> list of work, and, and you know, because we have to do our research when we do these, but you're someone who's worked with, on great shows. You've done a lot of episodic, but the good ones, not like the, you know, the, the six episodes and it's done. Like, what are some mm-hmm. of examples that something that you've sat there and went, man, I'm really blessed to be able to do this. Do you know what? I did an episode of Girls that I just loved, and it came at such a great time in my life. Um, it was actually just after I did Lucky Guy, and I had pitched the idea to Jenny Connor, the showrunner, that Becky Baker would have a sister who maybe had a drinking problem. And and there I was, her sister with the drinking problem. So that was very satisfying, just that it came full circle and that 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 I got to play with that company of girls because um, I have a lot of respect for Lynn Dunham and um, I thought that was a really fun show. That was a good one. What else? My God. Uh, um, uh, I did like uh, Raising Dion uh, because I got to shoot lightning out of my hands and hang off of cranes and rainstorms and pretend to be, you know, in the arms of a lightning monster and things like that. I didn't get, and then, you know, my my biggest sort of, uh, stunt work before that was holding a gun on somebody, you know. I, I really had a lot of fun doing doing that uh, sci-fi series. Now, have you enjoyed, because you got the, the Broadway show off of self-audition, but everyone started to have to self-audition, and now it's so funny. Because oh. Zooming is so much easier, because before, when I would Zoom people, you know, they would, now they have the lighting. Like everyone has something set up, because they're doing all these self-auditions. <laughs> Tell me your take on self-auditioning compared to the the room because i i what uh, i've noticed is theater actors prefer the room but the people who aren't theater actors prefer the you know they'll do take after take give me your give me what you like and don't like about the self audition the taped audition self audition the only thing i like about a self tape audition is the fact that i can control what i look like I can get my lighting perfect. I'm a woman of a certain age. I need to have my lighting right. Other other than that, I prefer to be in the room, hands down. Um, there's something uh, about having an audience when you're doing a theater piece. <laughs> you need an audience. It's an interactive experience. And, um, yeah, I much far, hands down, I prefer the room. Now, you mentioned you're a woman of a certain age. Has Hollywood's been changing? Has has there been more roles? Do you feel there's more roles now? Or, you know, because, you know, it's so funny. I'll watch a, a TV show. And it, it still cracks me up where the guy is, like, 75 and, and the woman who's playing his wife is, like, 40. And I'm like, okay, I know mm-hmm. a lot of people. I don't know many guys who are 35 years older than their wives. And if they are, I don't, I don't, I'm not hanging out with them because it's sort of weird. But... What have you noticed about the change? Because Hollywood has seemed to change. And, you know, like you said, you did Girls, where that was a that was a very, the people loved that show, and it was by women. And it's great because, you know, this that's the way the world is. It's not the old, you know, hey, the old the old guy in the room. But what have you noticed about roles as as you've been getting older and, and you're someone who has success, so you're not just someone who's, like, going up for a bit part. Have you seen a change? Um, there certainly are, um, there have been a lot of changes in the past many years in my industry. Um, and I think ageism is the last frontier, quite frankly. 
Um, and it's real. It exists and it's, it, it exists for women. Um, I don't know that it exists as much for men. Uh, I tend to think, no, it does not. I see a lot more older men on the screen than I do older women. And if I see an older woman on the screen, she's got to be Botoxed within, you know, three inches of herself. And I don't like that. So, you know, I think I think when you go to other countries and you turn on the TV, you get a shock. When you go to Canada and you turn on the TV, you see a 65-year-old woman who looks like a 65-year-old woman and will literally make you go, <gasps> <laughs> because we just don't have that here. You go to Europe, you turn on the TV, you'll see a, you know, a, uh, you'll see a 50 year old woman without Botox, <gasps> you know, it's, it's, we have a lot of sort of glossiness that we have become sort of, um, immune to, I think here, and that hasn't gone away, but I think to answer your question, just sort of directly, yes, there is more opportunity. Um, and I hope that continues. And, and I think part of that is because women writers are now getting in the, in the door. Women directors are now getting in the door, which is really what has to continue to happen because the men are all still running the game. <laughs> it's true. But, but the doors are, the doors are, you know, but the, the men are still at the top. What do you get recognized most for? Is it The Wire or is it The Blacklist? Uh, I got recognized yesterday for The Blacklist. Uh, I get recognized more for, I think, uh, I used to get recognized all the time for Bones, which, go figure. But I think it's probably equal for The Wire and The Blacklist, if you, ever, you can believe that. You ever get free stuff? Like, I always wonder, because people, my friend was just at the Emmys. I don't get free stuff. No, I wish I did. My friend went to the Emmys. She's, uh... She's in hacks. Oh yeah, well if you go if you oh if you go if you're oh your friend is in hacks, my favorite show. She plays she plays the uh the maid, her maid. Her name's Rose Abdu. Oh, I've known her I've known her I used to do stand up so comedy. Fantastic. I did stand up comedy with her husband back in Philly. We were, we started out back in eighty eight and we used to work That's together. That's great. And I moved to LA and I met Rose and she's Josefina and, and she's so great because she's one of those actors that she's great in everything she does she's just in that show called reboot and which is a great show and she plays the cop the old comedy writer and it's so funny but the em now the emmys you've been to the emmys right i've never been to the emmys not no. on the wire like not or SAG, the wire or? was the wire was only nominated for one emmy what's that what's that about does, does that like <laughs> does that piss you off be honest is that like is that like wait a second <laughs> no it's it makes this, me giggle this, no it makes me giggle it makes me giggle the Shield always won the, always was nominated and won the Emmys when The Wire was on, and The Sopranos, The Shield. So the Shield you, was always the big. Now, when you go to the Knicks game, do you get free? Like you and Cameron go to the Knicks game, do you guys get free tickets? Uh, I I do have a lovely Madison Square Garden hookup, and okay. that is a lovely, lovely woman who's taken pity on me and and allows me to come to various events there. I I love Freya, Freya Grant. I love you. Now, what's the future for you? What do you have coming up? You know, is it something that you, you are, you know, well, do you get auditions and offers? How does it work now at your point of your career? Do you have to do both or do you get all offers? I, yes. Yes. I get offers and I get auditions and I am currently shooting the only other job I've ever booked on a self-tape, which is a film called Lily, starring Patricia Clarkson, who's playing Lily Ledbetter of the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. And that's a biopic that is going to be fantastic. I'm shooting, finishing shooting that um, Monday in Atlanta. 
and then um, I will be back to the blacklist again. And um, uh, I I don't know what's in store for me there, but I I I. I hope I'm not in trouble for saying that I'm going to be on the blacklist. Now I might be in trouble. No, you won't. Now, who, who do you play in Lily? Who do you play in Lily? Is it a real person? Lily is a real person. I play a real person named Jocelyn Samuels, who was the head of the National Women's Law Center. I'm playing a lawyer, Lily Ledbetter's lawyer, which we like to say three times fast. Lily Ledbetter's lawyer. Lily Ledbetter's lawyer. Lily Ledbetter's lawyer. Um, and um, who was who is a real life, very very. Um, very much alive and, and, and active today in her career. Um, and um, John Benjamin Hickey is playing her husband. Um, and Patricia Clarkson is playing Lily. And it's uh, directed and written by a woman named Rachel Feldman, who is wonderful. So we'll hopefully have, uh, I'm not sure when that's coming out because we're just, we're finishing filming it, filming this week, this, this next week. Well, I want to thank you for coming on again. and My pleasure, Steve. How can people, I know you have a website. Give, it, give all your info. I do have a website. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, please follow me on social if you are if you like to see, uh, you know, weird pictures of Pickles the dog and know what's going on in my career at times. My social, is, my handle is at DD Lovejoy, just the letters D, D, Lovejoy. And um, I have links to all my places through my social. At Dee Dee Lovejoy. So people go there follow, go. go follow Dee Dee. Go back and watch all the wire. Go back to Blacklist. You know you, what do you got else to do? You know it's it's the winners coming up in New Jersey. You can binge all that stuff. Go to my my, my website CooperTalk.net. You can find over nine hundred and thirty episodes. Email me Cooper CooperTalk.net. Instagram at CooperTalk one. Twitter at CooperTalk. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.